I'm just looking at our petition online. It looks like we're at 1,016 signatures. So thank you everybody who has signed on to uh, our petition. It's had over 72,000 views and over 425 shares. So I think that really reflects um, the mood of many family lawyers and our clients with respect to this issue of going to court in person presumptively as the first step. So excited about the petition. Great work, everyone. Yeah, it reflects uh, how, uh, how important this issue is to us. So it's good to see that a lot of people um, are aligned with, with this issue. Yeah. And it's weird when we started, I didn't know, are we going to get 100 or are we going to get 20? Yeah, and, and that's significant because uh, there's not that many family law lawyers in the province. You know, it's, it's a significant portion of lawyers practicing family law. And uh, so, you know, that speaks uh, volumes, I think, that people would make, take the time and effort to sign our petition. Uh, they, might, they must feel very strongly about it. And, uh, and I think, you know, it's just a matter of sometimes time and effort that, that others haven't also signed it, right? But so it's very representative of, of how lawyers are feeling, in my opinion. And a lot of lawyers are sole practitioners or members of lot smaller firms, and they don't have a voice to, you know, get their message out. So this was a great tool to do that. And just on that point, Brian, I think the stats from the Law Society there's just over 1,400 lawyers practicing family law full-time in the province. Um, I think this is a lot. Gene? And just before we started, I wanted to recognize and thank the members of the press that I can tell are here, since it's a personal name and not a lawyer that I know, but I can see that CBC Radio Canada is here, CHCH is here, CTV News, is with us, Global News is with us. And so I wanna thank those um, uh, members of the media that have come and to learn more about this, this issue that is central uh, to the efficient functioning of our judicial system. And we will welcome your questions after we've made our presentations and also all members of the panel, I'm sure will be open to you to um, to answer your any further questions after this press conference. Yeah, good point, Gene. We're going to pri prioritize the questions from the media outlets who are here today, but we will also entertain some questions from our colleagues or any other members of the public who have joined us today. But we want to thank and recognize everybody from the media who's attended today to learn more about this very important issue that affects so many families in Ontario. So without further ado, I will now introduce our panel of Ontario family lawyers. So first off, we have Nafisa Nazarelli, who is the Senior Managing Associate Lawyer at Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. She is a collaboratively trained family lawyer and has been practicing exclusively in all areas of family law for over 10 years. Nafisa is also committed to giving back to the community and currently sits as a Board of Director at Lutz Place, the Malvern Family Resource Centre, the Durham Region Law Association and Collaborative Practice Durham Region. 
Next, we have Brian Galbraith, who has been practicing family law for more than 32 years. He owns Galbraith Family Law, which has 16 lawyers practicing family law with offices in Barrie, Newmarket, and Toronto. And Brian is the incoming president of the International Academy of Collaborative Professionals and an international leader in the collaborative movement. Next, we have Ram Shankar, who has experiences a lawyer for the past 28 years, starting from the time when he was called to the bar in 1994. Mr. Shankar has two master's degrees under his belt, a master of laws from Dalhousie University and a master of development economics, again from Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. He was called to the bar in Ontario in 2014, and he has three offices calling in Owen Sound, Port Elgin, and in Wyerton. And his primary focus is in family law, and he also practices criminal law and civil litigation as well. Gene C. Coleman has been practicing family law since 1979. He has authored many legal articles and served on a number of committees that have addressed access to justice issues. He passionately believes in procedural fairness, and that commitment to fairness brings him here today. Jean will address the health issues arising from recent judicial notices to the profession. Then we have Russell Alexander, and Russell is the founder and senior partner of Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. With over 20 years of experience, Russell offers a wealth of knowledge and expertise in collaborative family law. He uses his experience with a client-focused approach by creating unique solutions for each of his clients to enable them and their families to move forward with their lives in a compassionate and collaborative manner. So now that you know a bit more about our panel, I am now going to pass things over to Russell. Thank you so much for the introductions, uh, Shannon. The issue we're talking about today is there's some practice directions uh, with a presumption that certain types of hearings should be in person. Uh, we're of the view that all family court hearings should be remote presumptively and attendance in person if counsel agree or if necessary, directed by the judge. Uh, but we're going to talk about uh, time, efficiency, the environment, and self-reps. I think Nafisa is going to start. Please, Nafisa, the floor is yours. Thank you, Russell. Um, so remote hearings provide numerous benefits for clients and, the cl and their lawyers. <clears throat> Virtual hearings are cost efficient. So pre-pandemic, a court date would, could take up an entire day. The clients would have to pay for the lawyers full time. So, for example, for a motion, if a lawyer was in court, we'd be there all day, four to six hours at minimum. And this was a cost paid by the client. With the advent of virtual hearings, lawyers and their clients can log in at the time provided by the court and can be heard almost immediately. The client is paying for one to two hours at max versus a full day of four to six hours. Um, in addition for paying for their lawyer's full day in court, at times, clients would also lose wages for uh, a full day of work with virtual hearings. This is no longer the case. Uh, virtual hearings, uh, with virtual hearings, clients can save on gas, parking, childcare, all of these are benefits um, afforded by these virtual hearings. Um, another benefit of virtual hearings is that they're environmentally, environmentally friendly. So disbursement fees have gone down for clients. Uh, we are now not printing documents to file with the court. We're 100% paperless. Prior to the pandemic, we would be pr printing all of our court documents to bring um, to our hearings. With the advent of virtual hearings, we're able to upload our documents to case lines for easy access uh, by the judge. One of the primary objectives of the family law rules is to enable the court to deal with cases justly. There are four relevant factors in dealing with cases justly. 
proceed that the procedure is fair, saving expense and time, dealing with the case in ways that are appropriate to its importance and complexity, and giving appropriate court resources to the case while taking into account the need to give resources to other cases. Remote hearings have allowed the court to meet this primary objective by dealing with cases in the most cost efficient way. And moving back to a system where in-person is the norm rather than the exception is a regressive move given the benefits that are afforded by virtual hearings. I'd like to now pass uh, the, uh, the baton to Brian Galbraith, who's that next on our panel. You know, this is an access to justice issue in my opinion. It's, it's all about access to justice. It's about the clients and their experience. When we moved to a virtual court during the pandemic, I was concerned how that would work out. But it worked out beautifully because it fulfilled the obligations, as Nafisa said, of the family law rules, which is to keep costs to a minimum and, and, the, and to keep the time spent to a minimum. And it did both those things. It was beautiful. And I don't want us to fall back uh, to using uh, the in-person hearing as, as the, the norm. Around the world, courts have gone to a virtual courthouse. Around the world, uh, because it's efficient and effective and we're not going to step backwards. Some people have said to me, well, what about people who don't have access to the internet? Well, yeah, that's a concern, but it's not that many people. I looked it up, the World Bank said, in 2020, 97% of Canadians had access to the internet. So that's a pretty good, uh, you know, it's not perfect, but that's a pretty high number that would have access to a virtual court. And, but, you know, when we, uh, Nafisa talked about the costs going up, the costs going up will really have a huge impact on, uh, on the court system because when a lawyer has to charge four or five hours plus commute time, it, it makes the, every step in the process very expensive for clients. And so you're gonna see more people going uh, self-rep. You're just gonna, and, and we know that that certainly slows down the judicial process when you have self-represented uh, litigants because they're not, not familiar with the rules and so, so on. So yeah, oh, going back to the, the time and cost, you know, there's no commute time, there's no waiting around courthouse all day long. And so when lawyers can do other things and charge other clients uh, when they're not waiting around all day, which it makes it more efficient. And also the litigants experience is better. They don't wanna come to a courthouse and sit there all day long in, in fear and anxiety. They can be from uh, uh, zoom in on from home in the comfort of their home with their support and so on. So it just makes for a much better experience for the clients and saves clients money, which is according to, uh, you know, what the, the, the rules of court says. Just as Fred Myers, he said uh, in, in a court case, he said virtual proceedings have proven to be one of the first significant enhancements in access to justice since 2014. And he goes on to explain how efficient and effective it is. Of course, there's going to be some hiccups when we're dealing with technology. Uh, that's normal. But gee, it's still a, a vast improvement over attending in court. You know, um, it's, it's all, like I said, it's all about access to court uh, and to justice. And if they have, uh, you know, people who don't have access to 
the, the internet. Uh, I don't know that they would have transportation to a courthouse either. And so then they're going to be prevented from any kind of uh, justice, uh, access to any justice system. Uh, and so, uh, but you know, if there's someone who genuinely cannot make it to court, uh, sorry, cannot uh, have access to the internet, but can make it to the courthouse, we're saying, okay, well, those would be the exceptions. We want the in-person to be the exception and the presumption to be virtual court so that we don't lose all the advantages to our clients and uh, uh, everyone in the justice system. Thank you, uh, Brian. Ram, you're going to talk about the experience of northern and rural communities in legal aid yes. clients. Thank you so much, uh, colleagues and attendees. My name is Ram Shankar. I practice predominantly in a rural area in Bruce and Gray counties. So I'm giving you that perspective. When considering a rural area, there are no buses, no taxi services from one place to another, no Uber, no subway. Litigants and lawyers generally live far out in the countryside. It's not easy to obtain transportation to the courthouse. Now, this is particularly true for poor people or for disadvantaged sections of society who are involved in cases related to the Children's Aid Society. It is extremely difficult for them to obtain transportation. That is the reality. In the fall and especially in the winter, conditions can be hazardous. It is unfair to ask lawyers and litigants to appear in person when these matters may just as well be completed successfully remotely. Now, how do we know this? We know this because for the last two years, we've had hundreds of conferences from locations in rural and northern communities completed successfully. These include case conferences, settlement conferences, conferences, motions, and trials. Personally, I've completed four family trials remotely without any glitch. Court reports through Canley, et cetera, have also given details of numerous family trials being completed remotely, again, without glitches. In rural areas, generally the practice is to have rotational or rota judges visiting from the main central hub, so to speak. Each rota judge has their own laptop. Each courtroom is fully wired and has existing computers. And in fact, there have been additional computers added in each courtroom from 2020 onwards. So really there should be no reason for the judiciary not to use technology to assist litigants and lawyers in delivering justice remotely. In addition, we are now required to use case lines. I think one of my colleagues talked about that, but there is no secure internet in numerous courts in the rural areas to permit us to access case lines or even to our own office service. So what is the effect of all this on access, accessibility of justice? It is unrealistic to expect litigants to pay their lawyers money just to travel sometimes over an hour away to the courthouse, especially in a rural community. Each appearance may only take 10 minutes. Second, if the appearance takes more than 10 minutes, the lawyer still has to wait endlessly, sometimes for several hours for the matter to be called, whether it's for 10 minutes, five minutes, or even lasting 45 minutes. But essentially that period of time of several hours is a complete write-off. How can one justify litigants having to spend so much money to pay lawyers for this? Now the pandemic, though brutal, has revealed the efficiencies of technology. So my question is, is there really a need for us to go backwards in this sense of the term? If the system ain't broke, why try and fix it now by reinstituting in-person appearances as the presumptive mode of appearance? Let's talk a bit about legal aid. 
it is even more difficult for legal aid clients living in rural areas or in urban communities. Legal aid will not cover transportation costs or waiting time costs for the litigant and the lawyer. As a result of the new mode of appearance, many lawyers have stopped or will stop taking on legal aid cases. Ultimately, the poorer and disadvantaged sections of society will be the ones to suffer. Consequently, access to justice, which is the most important factor for our judicial system, will also suffer. Now, for the last two years, lawyers have been able to serve clients in other jurisdictions who would otherwise be self-represented. This is obviously no longer possible cost of legal services will significantly be reduced for clients, whether private or through legal aid. It is therefore critical that we attempt to embrace technology rather than go back and, and go back to a workable virtual system to harness what we can through the virtual world. If there are problems, let us explore a hybrid system or let us discuss and think of solutions as to how to rectify glitches within the virtual world rather than going back to an outdated mode of appearance, which is in person for everything. Colleagues, attendees, thank you so much. Thank you, Ram. Jean? Thanks, Ram, that was great. I am first going to speak about health, safety, and privacy. And I'll give my headline topics and then I'll expand a little bit. First topic. Ignoring the sixth wave. COVID-19 is not over. Many litigants and lawyers may be immunocompromised, immunocompromised, or have family members who are at risk. Why force these people to endure excess risk? Second topic, life-threatening. COVID-19 is life-threatening to some, particularly those with pre-existing conditions and can lead to other serious conditions. There's been a lot in the press about long COVID and the effects that it has on people. I read last night, you stand to lose 10 IQ points. Not all of us are able to withstand that. Requiring exposure to these risks is ill-advised to say the least. Third topic, counsel of choice deprivation. Requiring lawyers and their clients to attend court personally in light of these threats essentially deprives the clients of counsel of their choice. It places lawyers in, in an impossible and totally untenable position. Represent your client, go to court, compromise your own health, security, and well-being. Or don't represent your client and transfer the case to another lawyer. My friends, I'm not concerned about losing legal fees for transferring a case to another lawyer. I am concerned, however, about clients being deprived of counsel of their choice. Next heading, I'll go a, a little on a limb here. Charter violation. COVID is just not finished with us as much as government, chief justices, and regional senior justices would like it to be finished. 
we would all like it to be finished. We're all sick of it. Forcing lawyers and their clients into in-person scenarios is, in my opinion, a rather blatant charter violation with respect to security of the person. Chew on that one. Next heading. Protection for family violence victims. I'm just going to precede this point, a short point that I go make with a very short little vignette about my history as a lawyer. One incident. Many years ago, I had a client, two little kids. After she came to the first I think, interview or two interviews at our office, where I did even back then, the usual screening for domestic violence. I was assured by her and by her mother, the grandmother, the children, that there was no domestic violence. Her husband murdered her, stabbed her to death in front of her kids. And that, you hear my voice is breaking right now, had a profound effect on me in terms of my sensitivity to family violence. So how's that relevant here? Virtual hearings alleviate stress and are a veritable lifeline for victims of family violence. They don't have to be in the physical presence of their abuser. Family violence is important. We must not write it off or treat it less than seriously. Virtual hearings are a small contribution, but an important one for the security, mental and physical security of victims of domestic violence, of family violence. Next heading, safety and privacy. Virtual hearings create a greater sense of safety and privacy for litigants, particularly those who have been in a, simply an abusive relationship. I talked about violence just a minute, minute ago, just, just abuse in its widest sense. Physical distance from an abusive spouse translates into safety and security without sacrificing due process. Next heading, some have suggested that virtual hearings could inadvertently involve children who might be in the room while the parent is on is on Zoom. Parents need to be responsible and make certain that these court hearings via Zoom remain totally private. It is a parent's responsibility in family law cases to make certain that they do not talk ill of the other parent or involve the child in the court process, show them papers, tell them what's going on in court, that terrible sort of thing. Uh, courts sometimes make orders about this, that you gotta be careful folks what you do. And with respect to a Zoom hearing, same thing. You can't have your children in the room. That's the order. Uh, you can sometimes what judges and, and lawyers would require someone to do whom they're questioning or whatever 
is to say, would you please scan the camera around the room right now? There are ways of dealing with this. Harm to children, my friends? No. The uh, next section that I will be addressing in conjunction with my good friend, Russell Alexander, is arguments for returning in person. And I'm going to cover, I believe, two of them, and Russell's going to cover the balance. Mixed dockets is, is my first topic here. Blended court lists were common during the pandemic. And I understand it's a common place for a criminal remand. So we can handle mixed dockets virtually. Judges, I understand we're provided with laptops to access Zoom hearings from their homes. When they conduct hearings at the courthouse in person, you can still take out your laptop, folks. <laughs> if it's a hybrid hearing, well, you've got your laptop and you've got some of the people in court. And if it's a totally um, uh, Zoom hearing, remote hearing, okay, you can retire to your chambers and conduct the hearing there in the comfort of your own judicial office. Or you can just sit in court with your laptop on your desk and all is good. Next heading, let's make a deal in the hallway. We've heard in opposition to the position this committee, Russell, myself, and my other able colleagues, is take, well, you, you, you have to be at the courthouse to go to the hallway, get the lawyers together and get, the, get your clients together and, and, and you'll, you'll cut deals there much better than on Zoom. Uh-uh. We need to be mindful that cases do not just end up in court with no one talking to each other. This view, this argument advanced by some, including judges, is non-sensible or unsensible, whatever the word is. The Divorce Act, the family law rules, case law, you name it, requires parties to explore family dispute resolution prior to going to court. So let's everyone, lawyers and their clients and judges, let's obey the existing principles that we have. Zoom hearings do not get in the way of that. In fact, they complement and promote better communication. Who wants to talk about private matters out of the hallway? The second point under let's make a deal in the hallway. It is only when disclosure is not produced, there is a disagreement on legal issue or someone is not prepared to follow advice, agree to a reasonable settlement that in court proceedings might, might, might be required. And thirdly, when counsel attend in person, the issues, this is related to my first point, the issues have should have been or have already been reviewed extensively in advance. Judges in various practice directions and notices to the profession <laughs> re re require us lawyers to talk to the other lawyer. You're not supposed to come, for example, to a case conference, which is your first in-court uh, uh, step after pleadings are exchanged, 
You're not supposed to come to a court conference and that's the first time you meet the other lawyer. You're supposed to be talking to the other lawyer beforehand. You're supposed to be trying to work things out. Responsible family law lawyers are supposed to find solutions. So the argument that I've heard from some judges and elsewhere is, okay, folks, come to court to meet the other side. Nonsense. You should have done it already. You have to do it already. Case law tells us you have to do it already. There is not much to be gained by continuing the dispute, the disagreements, or even the discussions out in the hallway. It's wonderful to be able to get on a Zoom call or a Google Meet call with Russell, if I have a case with Russell, and Russell and I, for example, will talk about it and we will find solutions for our clients. Yes, we're in an adversary system, but family law is supposed to find solutions. And I dare say that all of the senior lawyers here on this panel hold to that, to that view. And I would say many family law lawyers hold to that view. We find solutions. So let's do it. Covering all the points that Ram has made and Afisa have made and Brian have made, let's do it in a cost-effective manner, in a cost-effective manner, and one that is convenient, and Brian made this point, is convenient for our clients and cost-effective for our clients. Now, I want it to be more convenient for my clients and cheaper for them. And I'll turn it over now to Russ. Thank you, Jean. It really is about access to justice. And I really like your comment about children. I'm surprised how many people still bring their children to the courthouse. Um, you know, having them at home is much better. And in terms of, you know, let's make a deal in the hallway. Well, breakout rooms have become the modern court hallways. I've had dozens of conferences where judges have put counsel into a breakout room for 20 minutes to work out a resolution or draft a consent. And it's been very effective. We don't need to be physically in the courtroom. Just a couple, I wanna address a couple other arguments uh, and uh, that we've heard and seen online in terms of returning to in-person. You know, there's a comment that was made online that uh, judges are concerned about the lack of on-site services such as mediation and duty counsel. And that's gone by the wayside with Zoom divorce hearings. There's, my understanding in Coburg, a very effective process where duty counsel is available remotely online. It's been going on for some time and it's been quite effective. So rather than having a duty counsel lawyer sit at a courtroom in an office somewhere, they can simply be on standby for a Zoom hearing and remote in when the judge or people involved in the process need them. And in terms of on-site mediation, we can still access mediators remotely uh, that don't have to be physically present. And in fact, uh, many collaborative files that we're doing, uh, we have family professionals and social workers providing their services across the province remotely. The other argument which uh, Ram touched upon is the access to technology and Brian's statistics were pretty incredible. Um, Certainly we can be very innovative in terms of how we approach technology and people's access to justice. We can create justice hubs. This is common in the US where people can go to a courthouse, access the technology they need to have their hearing, 
All the superior courts have family law information centers. We could use those facilities or even empty courtrooms to provide access to the technology that is needed. You could use a public library to access an internet connected device or other ministry of the attorney general um, buildings and locations to set up these justice hubs. The argument that it's easier to travel to a courthouse, especially in Northern and rural communities, uh, and especially in the wintertime, uh, doesn't hold a lot of water. Uh, I would argue that uh, many people can access technology through a friend, a family member, an employer, uh, a municipal government office. So the technology is available for those 3% that Brian identified may have limited access to the technology. The, and then finally, with respect to returning to the old ways of in-person hearings, um, I think everybody has learned that if we do the same thing over again and expect different results, uh, we're probably not gonna get different results. The complaints about the family court system in 2019 and early 2020 prior to the pandemic was it was too slow, too difficult to get a court date, and it was too expensive. Many of those have been addressed by this technology. It's become much more efficient. Clients are not running out of money because they've had to pay their lawyer for six or seven hours to do a one hour hearing and go self-represented. And it, it's, it's sped up the process. People can now conduct their family hearings from the safety and privacy of their own home. And as everybody has echoed here today, this is this issue of access to justice. Um, it's not an issue about making the process more convenient for the, the lawyers and the professionals and the judges who are part of the administration of justice. You know, put them all in the hallway, let them work it out. Maybe it's a case of attrition and some people are going to drop off or settle their case because they can't deal with the conflict anymore. Uh, that's not a fair and balanced approach to justice. Uh, I think this technology enables people to access this justice system at a reasonable cost safely and also from the privacy of their own home. So those are some of the you know, objections we've had and heard about keeping all the hearings remote, but I wanna bring Shannon back. We're gonna do some Q and A. You can put your questions in the Q and A box. I wanna thank everybody and especially the media who attended today and provided us with some questions. And um, let's see what questions we got and we'll go through them as Shannon, Shannon presents them. Thank you, Shannon. And thank you, yeah. everybody, for your comments today. Yeah, thank you so much um, to all of our panelists for sharing your thoughts on this very important talk topic. And thank you to everyone who has sent in your questions. We've received quite a number, so we're going to get through as many as we can right now. Um, so first question, I have this one specifically for Jean. Uh, you mentioned that COVID-19 may deprive people of their preferred choice of counsel. Isn't that a small price to pay for getting back to normal? Have any comments on this, Gene? It, it's um, not a small price to pay for all the reasons that uh, the uh, people here, the lawyers here, have have covered off. Um, access to justice, as we've all pointed out, particularly as Russell has summed up now, that's key. That's absolutely key. And as Russell said, there were complaints about the justice system prior to COVID, well, why go backwards? Let's go forwards. All of us here um, 
the, the lawyers here that are on this committee, some couldn't make today because of court commitments. Ironically, one of our group had to go to court in person. Um, we, um, I lost my train of thought, but in, in, <laughs> in, in any event, uh, it's not a small, it's not a small price to pay. It's too large a price to pay. We want an efficiently running judicial system. We want the users of the system. I'm talking about the client users uh, of the system to have something that is accessible to them. Now, there may be situations where you must be in person. And that should be, of course, in the discretion of the presiding judge. But the way the directions to the profession are worded and the way a decision on April the 19th by the Honorable Regional Senior Justice Ricchetti are worded, the onus, the legal onus is on the party that doesn't want to come in person. And we're saying the onus has to be on those that want it in person. So there could be situations where it simply has to be in person. We, we all recognize that. We are saying the starting point has to be it's remote. And even if one lawyer or one litigant wants it to be remote, then it should be remote. And those, if everyone else wants to go in person, fine. Go in person and we'll have a hybrid hearing. We'll have a hybrid hearing. So everyone can be moderately happy. Small price to pay, no price needs to be paid. Thank you. If I could just follow up with that question though, in terms of choice of counsel. There's a lot of clients with legal aid certificates who have no choice. They have a list of legal aid panel lawyers. None of them are taking certificates on. Nobody, they cannot find a lawyer to take their legal aid certificate. What we've noticed during the pandemic with remote hearings is now we have lawyers in larger centers such as Ottawa and Toronto accepting legal aid certificates in smaller communities such as Barrie, Rams Community in Owen Sound, Lindsay where I reside. They're now getting Toronto lawyers to take their certificates and having a choice and having access to counsel. Mo those lawyers are not going to travel from Toronto to Lindsay or Peterborough uh, on a legal aid certificate. They're not going to get paid. So it's just, it, Zoom hearings enhances people's choice to counsel when right now they don't have a choice because nobody would accept their legal aid certificate. Thank you. Uh, so next we have um, a question here. A comment first is, I am not entirely clear what the court's motivation is to go back to in-person. And the question is, is it the bench pushing for the change or is there another play, a, another player involved? Well, that's that's difficult for us to know what's going on behind the scenes and who's mo um, who's pushing for for the change. It's it's really not something we we are privy to. Yeah, I would note that there's you know, several juris, several regions where there's different um, chief justices locally, and they help, so it seems like all of them have different rules and different approaches to returning to in-person. So uh, there's no consistent message to the public in terms of access to justice and whether your hearing is going to be remote. And if you do go to court, 
there's no specific guidelines in terms of what to expect. Are people going to be masked, social distancing? Uh, are you going to be mixing with unvaccinated people? What kind of risk are you going to be put into going to a crowded courtroom or court, a court hallway or even a court building? Uh, there's no there's no guidance at all being provided. So let me just uh, follow up on that and give a quick example. See, a lawyer in Brampton, for example, who takes up a case, let's say, in Sudbury or Cochrane, can actually do the case mostly remotely. Why? Because the practice direction in that region says you can do it remotely. But the same lawyer, if he, were to, if he or she were to take up a case in Brampton, has to go in person for a number of appearances. So you see, that's the contradiction there, right there. Thank you. Bram, thank you for that. You raised the issue of Brampton by way of example. I'm gonna go out on a little bit of a limb here. I can afford to do it, I'm 72 years of age. Brampton was a big problem before COVID-19 and it is a big problem now. The, in that judicial district, the notice to the profession from the regional senior justice is probably the most or one of the most restrictive in terms of virtual versus in-person. You know, we have one set of family law rules for the entire province of Ontario, but unfortunately, we have different standards throughout the province. In Brampton, which is underserviced in terms of judges, they need, they have needed more judges out there for a long time, and they still do need more, particularly those with expertise in family law. And with the uh, notice of the profession out of that judicial district, I'm afraid to say that access to justice, as Ram ably pointed out, is a big issue in that judicial district, including uh, especially Brampton, but less so in the other centers that make up that judicial district. It's a problem. And uh, perhaps what is needed is more government funding to provide more judges and the consequent support staff that we need in Brampton. Um, I would also mention a different judicial district, Newmarket, even before COVID was impossible. You will go up to Newmarket pre-COVID on a motions list. <laughs> you could have 15, 20 cases there and not get hurt and wait there the whole day. It's still hard to get heard in Brampton. It's still hard to get heard in Newmarket, but at least you're sitting in your office and doing work of benefit to your clients and not charging one client for a wasted day up in Newmarket or in Brampton. Thank you. I would just like to add to that, Jean, that <clears throat> with all of these different um, uh, routes that all the judges are taking, it's becoming extremely confusing as to how to practice family law. You know, the pandemic has brought a lot of uncertainty. Uh, and now we don't know how a case is going to proceed. Um, a lot of judges have some discretion and there's not a unified process. So, I mean, I'm having trouble as a 10-year lawyer um, figuring out what to do. Imagine how it is for self-represented litigants um, 
you know, they're left in the dark. They don't know how to proceed. They don't know what to do uh, because there's too much uncertainty right now with that discretion. Yeah, well, one of the questions is uh, whether there needs to be an investment in technology and and absolutely there needs to be. Uh, you, there needs to be even if you stay with the uh, in-person uh, requirement because right now we're to file our documents uh, online with case lines, uh, yet we're supposed to start doing in-person hearings and yet the, the internet access at almost every courthouse in this province is terrible, to, to non-existent. So I don't know how you're supposed to pull up documents on case line uh, when, you're, when you're stuck in the courthouse. Uh, the government has already invested millions and millions of dollars mm -hmm. in case lines and is committed to keeping that online service uh, going forward, which is a, a good thing. It has some glitches, but it's a good thing. Uh, so yeah, there needs to be some investment of, uh, of money to facilitate uh, the continuation of virtual court or even in-person court. There needs to be money spent to make it work. Thank you. Uh, so next question we have here is, has there been any direct or indirect feedback from the court on whether these sentiments and the petition are being noticed and will be considered? Um, well, I've, I've uh, commenced the petition in my name. I have not received contact from the court uh, with respect to the issue that we've raised, uh, not officially. Um, I think indirectly there is a private Facebook group of lawyers of 1,400 lawyers, and I and I know it's been on fire uh, about this issue for since April, right, the beginning of April. And I, my understanding is there's some indirect contact with that Facebook group from Ministry of the Attorney General officials, um, but uh, they haven't contacted me directly, no. But I'm, we're, we're more than willing to work with everybody to ensure that access to justice continues to improve. Great, thank you, Russell. Uh, next question, this is another one for Jean. Uh, you said that COVID-19 is not finished, but governments and responsible senior judges of this province seem to be telling us that it's indeed quite safe to go back to court. Aren't you being over alar overly alarmist and negative? Some might say that you are like chicken little saying the sky is falling. Don't you think that people like you and your colleagues here are just trying to spoil it all for the majority of Canadians who are just sick and tired of this COVID mess? Jean, do you have comments on that? Well, I don't think I'm really chicken little. Uh, the, the health risks, safety and security are very real, as I covered recently. And um, members of this panel have talked about the desire of this uh, committee to work with government and work with the courts to um, ameliorate the system. COVID has forced us into certain improvements. Let's not throw it away. But there are, hey folks, there are risks. Let me share with you something that my, uh, that my wife actually uh, passed along to me not too long ago, like early this morning. There is this beautiful Japanese philosophy called, excuse, excuse me if I get the pronunciation wrong, Kintsugi mind. 
the philosophy behind the ancient Japanese art called kintsugi. When a piece of pottery is broken, the craftsperson repairs it with what? Gold or silver. So your repaired product is more beautiful than the original intact product. While the harms and losses due to the pandemic are certainly disheartening, it is possible to reintegrate that which is broken and emerge from the experience quite whole and quite improved. So can we engage in Kintsugi mind here and thereby emerge from the pandemic stronger? I hope that our justice system can emerge stronger. I hope that by this committee having, under Russell's leadership, having organized this um, protest, if you will, I, I hope the government will listen. I hope that regional senior justices and other judges will listen. And I hope that we can all pull together in the spirit of Kintsugi mind and make this system a better one. So chicken little, no, but someone along with my colleagues here pointing out that improvements are needed. Yeah, let's make the system better. If you haven't met Gene, he stands about six foot five. So little would, would not be the word I would use, but let's get to some more questions, Shannon. Thank you. Thank you. You're, you're exaggerating, Russell. I used to be six foot three, but in old age, I've sunk down to six foot two now. <laughs> Right. So next question we have here from the audience is, how has this requirement of in-person affected self-represented litigants? See, what happened was even during the pandemic, we had cases where there were self-represented litigants. So many a time, even today, there are instances where self-represented litigants have actually been able to use Technology, but what is technology? It includes virtual, which is Zoom, but also the telephone. So they have actually been calling in through a telephone many times. Now, in the cases where they don't have Zoom, they do use telephone, but there have also been instances where self-represented litigants are actually able to go to the courthouse and the courthouse says, okay, since you don't have absolutely no access to technology, we can arrange for a room can arrange for you to be present virtually. And it's happened several times. In addition, as uh, Russell pointed out, justice hubs are possible. You can easily go to your local library and make an arrangement there. So we just have to, in other words, think a little outside the box for solutions, even for SRLs. Thank you. Yeah, and justice hubs are commonplace in the US. Um, and I know we, I, I'd raised the issue about 18 months ago, but we haven't made any progress on that in terms of creating justice hubs where people can access the technology to do the hearings remotely. Shannon, back to you. Thank you. Uh, so next question for the panel. Um, does anyone have any thoughts on what you would propose is the best approach to tackling this issue of in-person versus virtual? Nafisa? For me, I, yeah, I would think the best approach is is a dual system, right? Where um, you have the ability to have in person if necessary or requested, but that the that virtual be um, be the starting point. Um, 
and then rather than the reverse onus, which is happening right now. I think that that's the, that's the workable solution. If technology is an issue, focus in on, again, resources to provide training and um, the ability to sort of, um, you know, use technology um, in an efficient way. Because I think one of the arguments against um, virtual is that uh, people don't have uh, the knowledge of technology. The court staff also is uh, lagging behind on technology. So resources towards that um, could be helpful in, in, in alleviating that problem and, and allowing for virtual um, hearings to continue. I think and that's just, a starting point. Just to pick up on that point, especially if there's two lawyers, if both parties are represented, it absolutely should be virtual. And if one of the clients have problems with the technology, they can access the technology through their lawyer's office, which was commonplace during the pandemic. It's part of a lawyer's obligation to prepare their client, uh, as always been our obligation to prepare our client for any court events. And part of that now is the, the technology piece. So it's, I don't think it, it's an impediment anymore. I agree. Sorry, yeah, no, I was just going to say, you know, at the start of the pandemic, a lot of people didn't know how to use Zoom. So we, you know, we walked our clients through that. We have, you know, a session with the client ensuring that they're, they're um, you know, they can be heard, they can be seen and, and do a practice session. So it's just a matter of change is difficult for everyone. But once you get through that hurdle, you realize that it, it's for the benefit um, of everyone. Sorry, Russ, go ahead. No, you took the words right out of my mouth. Just do a practice session with your client before the court hearing. Just as Brian's indicating, we need to prepare our client for the experience of being before a judge and what to expect and the proper decorum. And Zoom hearings is just another, another element of that. Next question we have is, can remote appearances slow slow down the court system? Previously, a judge could do maybe eight in-person appearances a day and now can only do four. Yeah, that's a common, that, that's a complaint that was um, raised in some research, I think, conducted by Professor Bell and a few other professors who uh, recently submitted an article to, I think, the Lawyers Daily or Law Times. In my view, uh, judges... Russell, be careful what you say. Professor Nick Bala is one of the participants here on the webinar. <laughs> I love Nick. He does great work. Uh, and Nick, if you want to put a question in, please uh, submit one. But um, I, in my view, and I, I don't sit on the bench, but I think the technology creates a lot more efficiencies for the court and the bench, especially the regional justices. Keep in mind, these judges are traveling sometimes in Central East to three courthouses, right? Lindsay, Peterborough, Coburg, and they... To, for them to have in-person hearings in multiple court locations, it's just, it's, it's not possible, right? The technology frees up these judges to service those three communities. And the argument that, you know, what flows from this argument is, we're gonna throw them all in the hallway and you guys work at a deal and come back in four hours and we'll see what, how far, what, how much progress you've made simply doesn't hold any water in my view. Um, like as Jean has indicated, we're in court for a reason. We don't just go to court immediately. We've negotiated for several months. There could be a specific legal issue or third party disclosure issue that we need help with. Or there may be a litigant who's not prepared to settle matters and requires the judge's order. 
But to use attrition and delay and have people run out of money because they're paying their lawyer to sit five, six hours in a hallway for a hearing that started at 9.30, which may not get spoken until until 2 p.m., uh, that's not a fair and balanced approach to justice. You know, we've gained a silver lining from the pandemic by creating these efficiencies. Let's not go backwards to, to, to 2020 to a system that we know wasn't working. You know, the complaints were, were everywhere a bit delay and expense. And Russ, just to add to that point too, I, I mean, I've heard judges say this, that they're not able to get through as many cases, but the problem is maybe the technology. We need to dig deeper to find out why is it that with this technology, you're not able to go through the cases? You know, do you need more support staff? Do you need, um, you know, um, more people assisting you through the, through, through the process um, virtually? Why are you not able to get through more cases? And I think when you dig deeper, um, you can find solutions. Yeah, better training. I agree. The next one up we have here is how would default virtual court affect the amount of staff needed at the courthouse? That's a good question. I would say it might require less staff. Um, and if you think about a court registrar, just to take one example, if it's virtual, that registrar can appear across the province in any courtroom and pick up the slack if another registrar is sick or couldn't make it in that day. If it's in person, that registrar usually is stuck in court 502 for the day or may go to another courtroom adjacent to that one. But with the technology, the court resources have the flexibility to service courthouses across the province. Same with judges and court clerks. And you don't need the CSO officer either. So in my, in my view, it probably would make it even more efficient in terms of staffing requirements. What do you think, Gene? That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I, I also think it's going to be more cost effective. In fact, what, Russ, what you've said is already happening. So court registrars are actually sitting in, say, Godrich or Lowen Sound, et cetera, and they're doing cases in uh, other major cities, for other major cities or where there's a lot more demand. So, and, and many times court registrars may actually do the work right sitting behind their own desk, not necessarily in the courtroom. Thank you. So next question we have is, as a person who has dealt with divorce in person as well as online, my mental health was greatly affected by the in-person. With uh, your clients, have you seen a dramatic difference? Aside from financial gain, is mental health gain a component in this discussion? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, especially with my clients that are victims of domestic violence. Um, I find with that, Divorces are, are innately extremely difficult. You're, you're dealing with clients that are going through one of the worst periods of their life. Um, court is extremely um, difficult, you know, um, getting to court, knowing that you're going to be sitting there all day with um, your, your ex in the same hallway. Um, sometimes they bring support people. So there's a lot of conflict that happens in the hallways um, of the courthouse and that, that add to a lot of the, um, uh, the, the this, you know, being scared, being nervous, the anxiousness of the whole process. So having it remotely has really helped. You know, you're in the comfort of your house, you're away from uh, the person that, you know, there's a lot of emotion involved. Um, it has absolutely helped with the emotions. Um, I, I think so, yeah. Yeah, and I'm concerned that if we return fully to in-person or partially, 
we're going to see a rise in self-represented litigants because they can no longer afford their lawyers. And that has, a, that takes a toll on the judiciary. You know, managing self-represented litigants in a respectful manner uh, can be quite stressful. They don't know the rules. They haven't filed their forms properly. They're quite commonly disrespectful and some of them are vexatious, right? And, and that increase in self-represented litigants is going to is going to put a strain on the judge's mental uh, health and well-being as well. I would like to echo what Nafisa said um, that we found in our firm, uh, a relatively small firm of five, six other lawyers, aside from myself, and um, it's been a lot less stressful for our clients, a lot less stressful. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it's great. It's great for, it's great for clients. It really is. And the system is really about our clients and the public's access to justice. That's what, that's why we're here today. Great. So I believe that is all the time we have for questions today. I just want to thank everyone again for joining us and sending in those questions. And thank you to all of our panelists. Um, thank you everyone for being here for the discussion. Um, if there's any closing thoughts um, from other, uh, any of our other panelists, um, please speak now. Otherwise, we'll let um, everyone go for the day. We'll do a couple quick closing comments. Thank you, Shannon, so much for organizing this and hosting. You want to go first, Brian? Yeah, you know, someone asked, is, is, are the judiciary and are the, is the attorney general listening? And I sure hope they're listening. We're coming here saying we want to provide a better experience and continue to provide an affordable exper experience for our clients. It's about our clients. And that's why we're here. And we've heard a thousand people sign that peti petition who are practicing family lawyers and are saying we need to stay virtual. So I hope the judiciary and the attorney general is listening because it's all about access to justice and that's your responsibility. Agreed. And Fisa? Yeah, I just want to echo what Brian said. This is an access to justice issue for all of us. We want to make, um, you know, a process easier and, and more cost efficient for our clients. Um, and virtual has been one of the very few uh, uh, advantages that we've gained from this pandemic. So let's not go backwards. Yeah, thank you for that. Ram, any final thoughts? So just echoing what others have said. So access to justice, cost effectiveness, and making the process less intimidating. I think that these are the key principles um, and making it smoother, which is otherwise such a daunting and you know, difficult process. So that's the reason. Dean and senior counsel, thoughts before we wrap up? I agree with everything my uh, three colleagues have uh, just stated, and I would also like to add my thanks to the members of the media that have attended uh, for academics and the lawyers who have attended and members of the public who have attended. We hope that you have found today's press conference enlightening. Yeah, and I would like to thank all our colleagues for signing our petition. My only final thought is to be mindful of the primary objective of the family rules. That's to save time and expense. And um, I think going back to the old ways and expecting a different result uh, will not happen. We need, to, we need to move forward with the gains that we've made in terms of efficiency through remote hearings. And hopefully, um, hopefully we'll be able to make a change. So thank you everybody for joining. 
us today. Shannon, great job hosting, very much appreciated. Thanks everyone.